1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. And God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you might have heard some of those words in there and gotten a little nervous with all the kids being here, but don't worry, we're going to keep it G, all right? We're going to keep it, someone, she thought that was funny, she's like, G. All right, so there is an assumption when we're talking about religion, quote unquote, I don't like that word, but religion or spiritual things, uh, and the assumption often is that Religion or spiritual things are concerned with the soul or with the spirit or spiritual realm. That religion is concerned with the afterlife, the ethereal things, and here and now are only matters for things that we need to avoid doing wrong things, but really we just need to care for the soul. We see this in ancient times, in the Bible times, there was a group called the Gnostics. And uh, Gnostics comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means knowledge. And they believe that Jesus was God, but that he did not take bodily form. Because they believe that the body, the physicalness, was bad. And so they think that Jesus came as a spirit, and he looked like you could see him, but he was like a, like a ghost, like a spirit, because he didn't have a body in their mind, because the physical was bad. And so they thought he couldn't have that. The opposite of that view is what is called materialism. The idea that only the physical world is important. Only the body, only the physical thing matters. And once you die, you cease to exist because only the, uh, the material is. Well, we see in Christianity that this is a false dichotomy. This is a false distinction. And we often make it today, even as Christians, when we separate the sacred and the secular. But what I want us to see is that it is not one or the other. When we think religion is concerned with spiritual things and morality and worship and sharing the message of the gospel, but that religion is not concerned with work or with sports or with hobbies, we believe sometimes that religion is unconcerned with marital intimacy as long as it's within marriage, God doesn't really care. Those assumptions are false. Christianity does not care more about the soul or so-called spiritual things more so than, spirit, than the physical in fact, it is much more holistic than that. God cares about uh, and is concerned with the soul, the mind, the heart, and the body all together. 
See, Christianity doesn't fall into the Gnosticism camp or the materialism camp. Rather, it combines the spiritual and the physical as one, as both united and eternal. So, here in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as we're preaching through 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us a primer on the theology of the body. And here is the big idea, the big takeaway from Paul. It's this, write this down. As followers of Jesus, we should glorify God with our bodies. That's his big point. As followers of Jesus, we should glorify God with our bodies. And that's exactly what he says at the end of the chapter in verse 20. He says, glorify God with your body. That's the point. That's the big idea. That's Paul's uh, big point here. And so, uh, uh, which means everything I have said, we do is with our bodies is meant to glorify God. But why? We need to answer that question first. Why should we care about our bodies? Why does the physical life matter? I want to show you the four reasons Paul gives in the text for why we should have a high view of the body and of the physical world. And because of those reasons, then I want to show you how then we glorify God with our bodies. So, Four quick reasons why we have a high view of our bodies. Number one, our bodies will be physically raised forever. Our bodies will be physically raised forever. We live in a world that thinks the spiritual world, thinks heaven is ethereal. It is mystical. It's shadowy. But I love how C.S. Lewis talks about the afterlife in his book, The Great Divorce, when he says, when we get to heaven... We will look back to earth, and earth will have just been the first stages of heaven. And he says when we get there, earth will then look like the shadowy, ethereal land. Because heaven is more real, more physical, it's heavier than earth. It's more solid. Paul, Paul spends an entire chapter later on dealing with the resurrection. And here in verse 14, he reminds us of it. In verse 14, he says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. We have been taught our whole lives this wrong idea that heaven is the end of the world. That heaven is where we go to spend for eternity and where we go to rest with God forever. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that just as Jesus was raised from the dead physically and bodily and literally, so too will every one of us who is in Christ be raised from the dead physically, bodily, and eternally. Our hope as Christians when we die isn't just that we're going to go to heaven. Heaven is a temporary holding place. Heaven is a temporary reality. Our hope is that Jesus is one day going to walk up to our graves and he's going to say your name and he's going to say, get up. And your dead, rotting corpse is going to reanimate and you're going to come up out of the ground. Just like Jesus did. And he will make you new and whole and alive again. Our future is not as souls floating around in heaven. We're going to, hey man, I've seen you all come float over here. Our future is right here in this ground that's underneath our feet right now. On this earth, with this, this body, not a new body, this body made perfect, made whole. Just like Jesus' body, though it was broken, though it was beaten to a bloody pulp, though his body was ripped to shreds, he was put back together and made perfect. And when he was raised from the dead, he was whole. 
And that is our hope. That no matter all the aches and the pains and the wrinkles and the brokenness and the scar, all that stuff will undo and God will make our bodies whole. And so the body then is not something to take lightly. Or the body is not something to dispose of. The body is not a temporary meat suit to house our souls. We are embodied creatures. And we will always be embodied creatures. We are not part mind and part soul and part body. We are one creature embodied with a soul and a mind all in one. And so God created our bodies. And he made them, as he says in Genesis 1, very good. Jesus affirmed that the body is good because he became human. He took on a body. He incarnated. He took on flesh. And in not just becoming, uh, when, when he died, he didn't become a spirit and go back up to heaven. No, when he was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. Jesus, right now, in this very moment, is physical. He is in heaven with his same physical body that he had on earth in heaven right now. And he will be in that body forever. The body matters to God. It is his creation. And he said it is very good. That's the first thing. The second thing, Paul says, is we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ. Paul takes us back to Genesis chapter 2 where marriage is invented. Where God says when you get married, you become one flesh with your spouse. When you're married, there is a closeness and an intimacy and a special bond that you have that you have with no one else but only your spouse and it is such a close bond that the bible calls it one flesh well marriage was designed to be a picture it was designed to be a poster a sign of something greater and marriage points us to that greater union and that greater one flesh that greater intimacy and greater closeness and that greater picture is intimacy with Jesus to be one flesh with Jesus. When we come to faith in Jesus, we, we become one flesh with him. Paul says it like this in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This union with Christ is so strong and so close that if we do something wrong, this is Paul's point, if we do something wrong, particularly if we do something wrong with our bodies, it is as if Jesus is doing that thing too. That's how one we are. That if we do something wrong, it's like Jesus does it too. It is guilt by association. We are so close to Jesus by our union with him, by our one flesh with him, that if we sin, particularly with our bodies, it makes it like Jesus did it himself because he's united to us. The point here is that what we do with our bodies does matter because we are representing Jesus with our bodies. The third thing, he says, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. God has lived in a lot of different places. He's had a lot of different homes over the course of history. He has lived in the Garden of Eden. He has lived in a tent called a tabernacle. He has lived in the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, where, uh, but where is God's home now? God lives inside, takes up residence in every follower of Jesus who has pl placed their faith in him. He lives inside of you. You have become a temple of the Holy Spirit where God lives. Verse 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Well, if your body was unimportant, if your body was a mistake, 
If your body was something to be discarded and disgraced, then why would God make your body his special home? In the Old Testament, when God gave people instructions to, to build the temple, God went into great detail for how the temple was supposed to be constructed. Not only its size and dimensions, but the type of material that it had to be created with. Gold and you know, precious stones and all these things to make it beautiful. Because God's home should be extravagant. And now, God doesn't live in some temple that's extravagant. He lives inside of us if we are followers of Jesus. He lives inside of us. And so what does that say? It says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It says that you have value. It says that you have worth. It says that you are beautiful and wonderful. And it means your body is important. The fourth thing Paul uh, uses here is he says, we were bought with a price. We were bought with a price. Because of sin that uh, we have committed in our own bodies, the world is broken. Our bodies are broken. We decay. We fade away. But God is reversing all of that. Right? We know that God is reversing all of that. We already said that he's going to resurrect our bodies. But in order for God to resurrect us, it cost him something to do it. Sin always incurs a debt. Uh, this is so helpful, I think, when you think about forgiveness and how it works for God and how it works for us. If... Uh, if I came to your house uh, and we were playing Xbox together, kids, if I was coming to your house and we were playing Xbox together, and I got so mad and I took your controller and I threw it at the TV and I broke your Xbox controller and broke the TV. Some of y'all are looking at me like, oh, no, Brent, that's too close to home. That's happened. But let's say I did that. Well, now there is a debt that has to be in, that's been incurred by me. And I need to pay for that controller and pay for that TV. But if you say, don't worry about it, I forgive you, that doesn't come free for you. It costs you something. It costs you 50 bucks for a new controller and several hundred dollars for a new TV. It costs you, you to, for you to forgive me for breaking that, you have to pay it. You have to pay the debt that I incurred. Forgiveness always comes with a debt. And when God wanted to forgive us, there is a debt that has to be paid, and God said, I'll pay it. And Jesus, who is God, went to a cross, and he died a horrible death, and in so doing, took the justice and the, and the anger and the, and the penalty of sin on himself instead of us. He paid the debt so that we didn't have to, so that he could forgive us. He had to pay the debt. He had to punish himself. And so his body was broken so that our bodies, though they die, could be made alive. God paid the highest price to save you, redeem you, and restore you and heal you so that your body and your soul could be made whole, forgiven and made whole. The other day, uh, my kids were outside playing, and uh, it was time for them to come in. I said, y'all, come in. They were all on their scooters and bikes and stuff. And one of my kids, I won't say which one, uh, but she comes riding up on her scooter, picks her scooter up, and chucks it across the bikes and everything. And I said, uh-uh-uh, come here, honey. Do we treat our stuff this way? No. Do we, we don't, like, you want to, if you break it, well, you're not going to have another one. We don't treat it this way. We had a long talk about that, right? This stuff costs money. It's ours. We want to take care of our stuff so we can keep using it. Now, I know the reason that she doesn't feel that. And the reason is because she didn't pay for it. She doesn't feel the need to take care of it because she has no skin in the game. She thinks, if I break it, I'll just get another one. She's got no skin in the game because when you buy something, 
You care about what happens to it. You value it because you own it. Well, God, by his blood, has purchased us. Paul says we are bought with a price. We belong to him. And if we belong to God, that means God cares about us. He is invested in us. He wants our good. He wants to take care of us. He doesn't want to just throw us around. He wants our good, wants to take care of us. So our bodies matter because they're going to be raised from the dead. Our bodies matter because they're united to Christ and what we do represents him. Our bodies matter because they're temples of the Holy Spirit. And our bodies matter because our bodies were bought with a price. His body was broken so that ours could be made whole. So the body matters. It's important. It's valuable. And since that is true, that should change how we think and how we function and live with our bodies. And so I want to show you four ways of how we glorify God in our body. All right, so number one, we follow God's laws. We follow God's laws, particularly the laws surrounding our bodies. There is an assumption about God's rules for the world, and the assumption is this, that God has made up a bunch of rules for us to follow, and the rules really aren't for our good. They're just arbitrary rules that he's made up to keep us in line. Kind of like a kid who doesn't understand why their parent has made a rule that you can't stick your finger in the outlet and, and the kid's like, Mama, you don't understand how fun it is to stick my finger in the outlet. I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. And we're like, no, it's going to really hurt. They don't understand. They think their parent has made up some arbitrary rules. Or it's like your, your nine-year-old who doesn't understand why their parents won't let them have a cell phone yet. And they say, all my friends have one. Or they say, why can't I have Instagram? All my friends have Instagram because you're nine. Come on. <laughs> and you're like, why can't I take my phone to my bedroom at night? Because I'm protecting you. And they don't get it. They don't understand. But the rule is there for their good even when they don't get it. And don't you think God's the same way? His rules aren't just random made up things to keep you in line or, or to see if you'll follow them or to keep you from having fun. He made the world. He knows how it works. And he's saying, hey, this line right here, if you go across it, it's going to end poorly for you. It's going to be bad. So don't go past that line for your good. Like, oh, but that looks so fun. Right? That's what we do. And so God's rules are for our good. Verse 12, here's how Paul says it. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. What in the world is he saying here? All things are lawful for me. And food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both. Those are quotes. Paul is quoting the Corinthians. That's not Paul saying this is a good thing. He's quoting the Corinthians. He quotes them and then he corrects them. And then he quotes them again and he corrects them. He's saying this is your false belief and then he corrects their false understanding. You see, they believe that their bodies were temporary and that their souls are unimportant. Or their souls are important and their bodies are not. And so therefore they could do whatever they want. Right? He's saying, you say all things are lawful for me. You believe you have freedom to do whatever you want with your body. And you're right. You do have the freedom. You're in control. You can do whatever the heck you want to do. You're free. But just because you're free to do something doesn't mean it's helpful. Doesn't mean it's good. 
doesn't mean it's good for you. Just because you're free to do something doesn't mean uh, we should do it because it might dominate us and control us when we become a slave to that thing, which is what happens when you cross the line into that thing you're not supposed to do. It enslaves you. God's rules are not meant to keep us from joy. Rather, they are meant to keep us from counterfeit joys and lead us to actual joy. That's what it's real for. C.S. Lewis says it the best way ever. You've heard this quote a million times from me, and you'll hear it a million times again. Uh, But he says this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the, uh, by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God's saying, this is what I want for you. Don't do that. That's bad. That'll hurt you. Let's take this. And we're like, Hawaii? Nah, man, I'll take, uh, I won't say a particular place, not to defend where you're from, but some you know, random place. I'll, I'm not going to, I'll play in the mud. God's like, how about Hawaii? Nah, I'm taking the mud. Right, or it's like this, I have the freedom to do whatever I want, and so I could take this guitar, WWE style, right, and, and smash it. I could take this guitar, I could put it on right here like this and say, this is how you play guitar. But I'm the, I have freedom, I can do whatever I want, and if I want to pick up the guitar and play it like this, I can. But what if I flipped it around... And I played it like this, and just did whatever I want, pushed whatever, whatever strings I wanted. Does that sound good? But what if, what if expressing my freedom doesn't lead to beauty and joy? I can freely do this if I want, but what if expressing my freedom isn't what leads me into joy and beauty, but what if actually embracing my limitations, embracing the rules that surround of the purpose of a thing, what if embracing that actually leads me into beauty and actually leads me into joy? And I use my fingers rightly, and I play it how it's supposed to be played. Does that not lead to beauty and joy? Limitations around what it is should Lead me into joy, bluegrass style. Limitations and rules are not meant to keep us from joy and our purpose. They are meant to lead us into it, to actual freedom. Here's the point. You've got freedom to do whatever you want. You're in control of your body. You can do whatever you want with your body. But expressing that freedom, Paul says, is not beneficial to you. It doesn't lead you to joy. And actually, since our bodies are important and they are internal, we should not be slaves to anything. We should not do just whatever we want with our bodies because that's not their purpose. You see, God's rules for our bodies are not meant to restrict us. They're meant to lead us into abundant life. And if you believe that God designed the world and, you, and he also designed your bodies, then it makes sense that God knows how the world works better than you. And we should trust God when he says, I made the world like this, so don't do that. Do it how I've made it, and it will lead you to joy. We should, with our bodies, do what God says. The second thing we should do is we should have a high view of our bodies, a high view of our body. The body you are in right now is the body you will exist in forever. Your body is not temporary, it is eternal. If you are in Christ, this body is going to be raised from the dead, and all the broken parts are going to be made perfect again. And we will live on this earth in eternity for Jesus, with Jesus. 
And while we are here, we will be worshiping, yes, but also while we're there in new creation, in this new heavens and resurrected world, we will be working, we will be building, we will be creating, we'll be doing everything that Adam and Eve are supposed to do in the garden. And so we do not view our bodies now as something to be discarded. We look to take care of our bodies because they will last forever. That means we should exercise. That means we should diet. It means we should grieve when our bodies are failing us because they're broken. That's part of the curse. And it also means that we should hope in and look forward to the day that our bodies will be restored and made whole. Do you know uh, why the why Christians have historically buried their dead. That's a new thing in the history of the world. right? The pagans forever, they don't bury their dead. They burn them. Because the pagans said there's no, they don't need this body anymore. It's useless. Let's burn it up and they'll go off to Valhalla or wherever. But Christians buried their dead because they, and they actually faced them toward the east because they believed Jesus was returning from the east to come raise them from the dead. And so when we are buried, it is expressing our Christian hope that this body is going to be raised. We have a high view of the body, and it's going to be raised from the dead. Now, that's not to say if we've got a loved one that's been cremated that God can't put their ashes back together. Absolutely, God can put their ashes back together. But, but burial is a particularly Christian thing because we believe in a resurrection. The third thing, we do not sin against our own bodies. That is part of Paul's point here in the text, that some sins are outside of the body, right? Like when you lie, it's a sin, but it's a sin not not against the body. It's outside of it. But some sins, and specifically here he's thinking of sexual sins, but y'all can can apply that to yourselves, but sins against our own bodies. So having a high view of our bodies means we don't sin against them, which means we don't hurt our bodies, right? We don't do self-harm in any way. It also means we should not tear down our own bodies. When we look in the mirror, we should not look and think or say, man, I am so ugly. To do so is to demean and disgrace God because God created you as a masterpiece, the Bible says. God has made you and every cell in your body exactly the way he wants to. You are in his image. You are more beautiful and more priceless than the best Van Gogh, the best Rembrandt, or the best Picasso. You are more beautiful than every statue carved by Michelangelo. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and not just your soul, but your body. And your painter and your designer and your creator is God. And the the one who defines beauty made you. And you, humanity, are the crown jewel of his creation. And so don't you dare look in the mirror and think anything less than a masterpiece by the hand of God. And don't you hurt it. And don't you destroy it. It's God's and he made it. He gets to say what we do with it. And then finally, not only do we not sin against our own bodies, we don't sin against the bodies of others. We don't sin against other people's bodies. While you are the crown jewel and masterpiece of creation, so is the image bearer who is sitting next to you right now. So is the elderly person whose youth has faded. So is the person who looks, uh, whose looks, whose appearance does not conform to what the world calls hot. Every person who bears the image of God is special and beautiful. And so we should treat them, and specifically their bodies, with the dignity they deserve. God made them, and so behold their beauty 
and see the maker in their eyes. See the maker in their appearance because they are a masterpiece. And so don't tear them down with your words. Do not mock or make fun of their appearance. We should only build up and encourage and make whole. The world does enough tearing us down as it is. We should be the place and we should be of the business of making people feel whole again. Because that's what Jesus is doing. We should not glorify, another application of this, we should not glorify fighting. And we, should not, and we should even be careful of how we glorify violence, even in sports, whether boxing or football or anything else. We should be careful how we glorify the body being hurt and broken. Our bodies are not meat suits that are just here to hold our souls. Our bodies were made by God, beautiful and wonderful and with purpose. And they will be resurrected from the dead, whole, perfect, forever. You see, Jesus became a human. He took on human form. He took on a body, and his body experienced the same curse of sin that we all experience. His body got tired. His joints ached. He got sick. He bled. He suffered excruciating pain. His body gave out, and his body died. And he was placed in a borrowed tomb. But his body does not stay dead. His rotting flesh comes back to life. His empty lungs fill with air. His heart that is still begins to beat. His blood flows and he comes back to life, resurrected. And after 40 days, he ascends into heaven. Not his soul, but his body. Where right now he sits at the right hand of God, showing that his work is complete and his reign has only begun. We remember that his body was broken because our bodies are broken. And his body was raised so that our bodies could be raised. His body was made whole so that our bodies could be made whole. We remember this truth by taking what we call the Lord's Supper. Where we eat bread. And as we eat the bread, we break the bread between our teeth. And just as his body was broken, we break the bread. And we drink the fruit of the vine to remember that his blood was spilled. And we take this meal to remember the links that God would go to to save us. Not just our souls, but our minds and our hearts and our bodies. So if you are a Christian, that you have placed your faith and trust in Christ. Not just believed in God, but you have believed in Jesus specifically. and You've made him king of your life. Then we're going to pass this meal out in a minute, and this meal is for you. To remember that Christ was broken so that you could be made whole. But, and hear me. If you do not belong to Jesus, you might believe in God, but if Jesus isn't your king, this meal is not for you. The Bible warns us not to take this meal in an unworthy manner unless we drink wrath upon our heads. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, come take hold of Christ. Come believe in Christ today. Don't take this meal. Now let me say, being unworthy does not mean that you've sinned this week. Because if being unworthy meant you sin this week, no one in this room could take this meal. I love there was an old Scottish pastor who was passing out the Lord's Supper one day. And there was a woman in his congregation who was feeling particularly guilty about some sin that she had done that week. And through tears she said, Pastor, I can't take it. I've sinned. And he looks at her and through an incredible Scottish accent says, take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. And this meal today is for sinners. And so let me tell you, all of you qualify. 
It's for sinners who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And if you are a kid in this room, parents, let hear me. Many of our kids in this room would express they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they love Jesus, but they've not gotten to a place yet where that's been really dived deep into, they've confirmed that, they have really really know that they know that they've believed and that they've not been yet baptized. If they've not received the, the entry sign into the covenant of faith, then let's not give them the continual sign of the covenant of faith just yet. All right, let's hold off on that to make sure. Right, let's make sure that these kids are believers. Instead, parents, use this time to explain to your children the gospel. Explain what the juice and what the, what the bread mean, that his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that our sins could be forgiven. Explain that their faith cannot be your faith. They must believe for themselves. And when they do, this meal will be for them. But until then, they can watch and long one day to be a part of the people of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness. We thank you that you are a God who has embodied us in human form. You have made us in your image and in your likeness. And you have gone to the great lengths that you've become man. You've taken on flesh. And your body was broken so that our broken bodies could be made whole. God, would you make us a people who value the physical world, who value our bodies, who treat them in accordance with the fact that they will be raised and will live for eternity. And would you help us to be a church that values the bodies of others, to care for them, to love them, to serve them, to build them up, and to never tear them down. Father, as we take this meal, would you remind us that your love knew no bounds, and so it went to a cross to be bloodied and killed so that we might be forgiven of our sin. Father, for those in this room who do not trust in you, who for whatever reason are far from you right now, would you give them the courage? I'm going to stand in the back of the room. And if that's you this morning and you're saying, Brett, I want to follow Jesus, but I've got, I've got some struggles, I've got some anxiety, I've got some fear, I've got some, something going on in my life that's holding me back, let me walk with you through that. God is not afraid of your doubts, he's not afraid of your fears, and he's not afraid if you're mad at him. He can handle it. He's a big boy. And so, God, give us the strength this morning to come deal with where we're at and trust in you and find new life through you that's only through you. Father, we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray. All those people said.